Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week we'll be discussing a new topic or trend so you can stay informed the easy way. So Rena, what are we talking about this week? So last week, you suggested to me that we should talk about Sri Lanka. And I have to admit that I knew very little about Sri Lanka. When I took a moment thought, okay, what is the information that I already have? I obviously remember the bombings that happened in 2019 there. I remember hearing about the Tamil Tigers. When I think Sri Lanka, I think of tea. I think of a place where people go to vacation. But actually, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit, that is the extent of what I knew about Sri Lanka. I did a bit of a deep dive this week, obviously, because we're talking about it on the podcast this week. And holy shit, there is so much going on, and it's a little embarrassing to admit that I didn't know anything about it. If you haven't seen this in the news, Sri Lanka is in the middle of a economic crisis. People have been protesting. They don't have food. They don't have fuel. They have power cuts. People have to prepare their food and eat by like kerosene lights in the evenings because they have a 13-hour power cut. Something big is happening there, and it's a little shameful to admit that we're not really talking about it. So yes, this week, I have been thinking about Sri Lanka. Yeah, so I actually know quite a lot about Sri Lanka because my dad is from Sri Lanka, and I've been to Sri Lanka. I just spoke to my cousin this morning who is in Sri Lanka. There are a lot of protests going on, but he said actually also... It's not dangerous for tourists to come, he wanted to point out in particular. But yeah, there are massive, massive shortages. He said it's not yet a humanitarian crisis. People are not starving, although they were about six weeks ago. The situation is pretty bad, though. So food and fuel costs in particular have risen astronomically. And there is a shortage of medical supplies. So doctors are saying that they can't do their jobs and that people are going to die. There is a severe economic crisis, I think the worst since the 1940s. The economy is in freefall. The rupee has declined by more than 30% to the dollar. And people are waiting for hours and hours to get food and fuel. And if they can get them, they're paying exorbitant prices for them. My aunt is in Sri Lanka right now. She went there for a wedding. This wedding got cancelled two years in a row because of the pandemic. And now there's this happening but she said, yeah, you know, you line up at the gas station for like three hours and then you get to the petrol station and there is no petrol. So, yeah, people are calling for the current president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, to go. The Rajapaksa family is quite interesting because they have been in power for quite a long time. It's like a dynasty since 2007 when his brother Mahinda Rajapaksa came to power. And right now Mahinda Rajapaksa is the current prime minister and they are still there. However, after the first protest, I think all of their cabinet, apart from those two, quit. And then they appointed another five new people. Then all of their coalition partners also abandoned them. So they no longer have kind of like a majority government. So the situation is quite unstable. And so there's a little bit of a power vacuum as well because the opposition is not taking over either the foreign reserves are gone they're going to default on their debt india has delivered fuel and extended a credit line of about 2.5 billion dollars 
So that's good and easing it a little bit. And yeah, they have to go into negotiations with the IMF to try and negotiate and restructure their debt so that they can move forward. And that's the current situation. Damn, a lot going on in Sri Lanka. I was watching a thing about Sri Lanka. And I mean, I think, as you mentioned, like the president's cousin, I think, or uncle or something is also like the finance minister. But you're saying, right, they're like everywhere, right? It's nepotism. They're holding on to power by putting all their relatives into the different positions so that they control absolutely everything that happens. I also didn't know a lot about the history of Sri Lanka. I'd heard, obviously, of the Tamil Tigers, which are actually called the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. And I wonder who first started calling them the Tamil Tigers, because Tamil Tigers, to me, when you first hear that, I feel like it sounds like a sports team. But the Tamil Tigers are a militant organization based in the northeast of Sri Lanka. Okay, I have so many questions about the Tamil Tigers, because the more I learn about the situation in Sri Lanka, the more I'm like, I'm trying to think of a very delicate way to put this, because obviously I do not condone militant organizations or suicide bombings and all this stuff, because there is an imbalance of power within Sri Lanka, right? The Tamils are the minority. They are the ethnic minority, and they're being oppressed in Sri Lanka to a certain extent. So the Tamil Tigers, yes, although militant, are a reaction to oppression. I'm being very careful as I say this. So actually, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, they're also known as the Tamil Tigers. So I don't think it's a Western name, or at least in English in Sri Lanka, they're referred to as the Tamil Tigers. It's really funny because when I was a child, my dad used to drag us on these protests to label them a terrorist organization and the international community and things like that. And I remember when I first went to Sri Lanka, there used to be checkpoints everywhere, military checkpoints everywhere on the main roads and things because there were serious bomb threats and things like that from the Tamil Tigers. I was looking at the history of, uh, the economic history of Sri Lanka, actually. It's true that a number of policies made this problem happen. Legislation that disenfranchised Tamils, which were the minority population, was passed. And also, Sri Lanka is a multi-ethnic country. The largest group is the Sinhalese people, and they speak Sinhala, and they're Buddhist. Not to interrupt, but I can quickly give you the exact population and religion breakdown. 74.9% of Sri Lanka identify as Sinhalese, 11.2% as Sri Lankan Tamils, 9.3% as Sri Lankan Moors, 4.1% as Indian Tamils, and then 0.5% are other ethnic groups. In terms of the religious breakdown, the Sinhalese, as you mentioned, are mostly Buddhist, so 70.1% identify as Buddhist, 12.6% as Hindus, 9.7% identify as Muslims, 6.2% identify as Roman Catholics, 1.4% as other Christians, and 005 as other religion. Ah, thanks for that. Yeah, so it's been multi-ethnic. At the beginning, when they claimed independence from Britain, they were a British colony for 150 years, both the Tamils and the Sinhalese people population sort of got together to claim freedom from the British. And then afterwards, this multi-ethnic approach was sort of abandoned. 
And that created big problems because, you know, certain parts of the population, like the Tamils weren't being silenced or not being heard. There was this idea, for example, that Singhala was the official language of Sri Lanka. Also, of course, the government at some point became one of the biggest employers of people in Sri Lanka. But then government policies and education and employment policies kind of favoured the Singhala majority rather than the Tamils. And so this bred radical ideas. So you can see how it happened. And it's quite interesting because I think in the end, if you're managing a country or society, it just shows how important it is to listen to all parts of the population. Otherwise, you know, you end up in a civil war for many, many decades. And with the protests right now, it seems like nothing's been learned because when these protests started happening... Rajapaksa's first reaction was to declare a state of emergency, giving the army powers to sort of shut them down. And then he shut down social media and imposed a curfew. And that just does not silence people, right? It makes them more adamant that they must be heard. And that's just a lesson that kind of everyone needs to get. Just listen to people and include them. You're going to make a bigger problem if you don't do that. And I think that's definitely what happened with the Tamil Tigers. It was a lot of mismanagement. Also in terms of economics, you know, like Sri Lanka lost out on some tourism and also some big contracts from foreign companies because there was this unrest. So in the end, it's kind of not good for anyone really. Also with the Tamils, there's this idea in Sri Lanka of being the minority within the majority. You were saying about the Indian Tamils because the Buddhists and the Sinhalese and the Sinhala language in that region is actually a minority. It's only that small island and they've got India right next door and they've got the whole of Tamil Nadu and a lot of Indian Tamils and diaspora Tamils sort of supported the Tamil minority in Sri Lanka. So there was this idea too, like to try and preserve this unique and minority Sinhalese people in in this region, which I guess played into it as well. Sri Lanka was connected by a land bridge to India until 1480, when the land bridge was destroyed by a cyclone that came through. So actually, it was part of the continent until I said until recently. 1480 is not recently. That's actually it's like before Shakespeare was alive. So. I was reading about the Ceylon Citizenship Act of 1948, and it was a controversial law passed by the local parliament, which did not grant citizenship to Indian Tamils, who were made up 11% of it. I was just like going through all of these sort of things leading up to the Civil War that sort of contributed to this hostility. So you had the Sinhala Act of 1956, the 1956 anti-Tamil pogrom, there were anti-Tamil riots in 1958, there was Sri Lankan state-sponsored colonialism of Tamil regions, 1971 policy of standardization, 1977 anti-Tamil pogrom, again, planned destruction of like Tamil libraries, and of course, Black July. Black July is generally seen as the start of the Sri Lankan civil war between Tamils and the government of Sri Lanka. It started in July 24th, 1983. Black July was an anti-Tamil pogrom that occurred in Sri Lanka, and it was premeditated and finally triggered by a deadly ambush on the 23rd of July 1983, which caused the death of 13 Sri Lankan soldiers 
by the militant group, the Tamil Tigers. Also, if you don't know what a pogrom is, it is an organized massacre of a particular ethnic group. It's also important to note that the British had a lot to do with the original actual problem because they had this policy of divide and rule, so they created these ethnic divisions or this kind of thinking in the first place. The more and more I do this podcast, the more and more I realize that the British are basically responsible for almost all the problems we have in the world right now. But anyway, during the period of British colonial rule, the British actually put a lot of Tamils into clerical jobs and administration jobs. And I think by 1956, 50% of the clerical jobs were held by Tamils, even though they were a minority of the country's population. And this is a common kind of British tactic. And so the Sinhalese leaders saw this as something that they needed to rectify. And also the Official Language Act in 1956, the Sinhala-only Act, was introduced. But beforehand, English was the country's official language, despite being spoken by only 5% of the population. And so, yeah, a lot of the problems that and a lot of the legislation that came afterwards were kind of a reaction to the things that the British introduced during their rule. But it's kind of a shame that a lot of problems happened in Sri Lanka in the past decades, because after 1948, when it claimed independence, it was in a very, very good position. It had great infrastructure, it had great industry, tea, coconut, rubber, it had very high literacy, it had suffrage, you know, women had good rights. In fact, Sri Lanka had the first woman prime minister in the world, Siramavo Bandaranaike, and she was elected in 1960 and was elected prime minister of Sri Lanka three times. And in 1950, the GMP, which is the gross national product, was higher than India, Pakistan, Thailand, and South Korea. So it's quite funny that this could have gone, I mean, this country, you know, is so rich in resources, the people are very lovely. There were a series of economic steps that were just not very well thought out. That sort of like got us to the stage where we are now. So I'm just going to give you like a kind of really brief history. After the war, the UNP, which was a sort of conservative party, came to power. And because there was like quite a strong leftist opposition, they introduced really expensive food subsidies, which were kind of paid for by booming World War II prices and the Korean War. But then after the Korean War ended, they couldn't really afford it anymore because commodity export prices crashed. And... They had to raise the cost of food and public services. And this is when the country's people first rose up in a similar protest, which was called the Hartel, and it forced the resignation of the prime minister. And then a new government came in. Like I said, that was worse for ethnic harmony because it wasn't a priority. And that's when Singular was instituted as the only official language. But anyway, at this point, import restrictions were put into place. So like they thought they could save money by not importing stuff and doing everything themselves in kind of monopolies. And many countries have done this and sort of it's work, but it has to be part of a well thought out economic plan. And in this case, it kind of wasn't because in Sri Lanka, there were just massive inefficiencies as the government tried to do everything and their domestic products that they were making instead of importing were actually cost more than the imports in the first place because they had to still import the raw materials and then do everything themselves. It didn't really make sense. And so then by the 1970s, 
Sri Lanka changed from one of the most open market economies to one of the most closed non-communist economies in the world. And that's when South Korea and Thailand and Indonesia kind of took over the GMP. And then plantations were nationalized finally. Foreign companies kind of knew this was coming so that they didn't invest in them. So the plantations became very inefficient and were not operating properly. And then six government ministries were put in charge of them. And that was not good in any country. Government ministries, loads of them being in charge of things is just never good. And then in 1977, a new government basically opened everything up again. And this was kind of good. However, it did show some authoritarian tendencies. And again, you know, the Tamils consolidated the LTTE. And this led to a civil war, which again is kind of bad for the economy. And this civil war lasted until 2009. However, the economy did boom. For example, from 1995 to 2006, the amount of people living in poverty declined from 29% to 15%. And then in 2007, we got this new administration led by Mahinda Rajapaksa, who is the current prime minister. After he ended the civil war, he called a snap election, which enabled him to sort of amend the constitution and greatly expand his executive powers, which is never a good sign. He also did this like import substitution again. So like he stopped importing certain things. However, the economy continued to do well despite this. But this is kind of like a surface view because a lot of the stuff that happened in the last few years was due to like infrastructure projects and stuff, which is not necessarily sustainable or has questionable economic viability. Plus there was corruption. A lot of the Rajapaksas have had and do have unexplained wealth in other countries. And also, yeah, their unemployment rates did go down and stuff, but then actually a lot of workers who were kind of left out by the economic gains sort of went abroad to work. And they actually became the second biggest source of income for Sri Lanka, migrant workers sending money back home from other countries. So when the pandemic hit, this massive source of income from migrant workers was gone because they could no longer, you know, travel abroad or work from abroad and send money back. They were in a difficult position. Tourism went. Tourism is a massive source of income for Sri Lanka as well. And then, yeah, there was this corruption as well. And also there were just bad decisions. I think like last year, the government briefly banned fertilizer imports because they thought it would save dollars and they wanted to move to organic farming. But obviously this affected food production. So they kind of reversed it, but obviously it still did affect food production. It's just a shame that the government, and not just this government, I guess, quite a few governments beforehand, it's been a building up of sort of bad decisions to get us to this point. But it's not like Sri Lanka doesn't have any potential to be a really rich and well-functioning country. And that's, that's really a shame. And then, of course, to add to that, the ramifications of Russia invading Ukraine, because Half of Sri Lanka's wheat and sunflower oil comes from those countries. So that's also been a really great and fun thing. I do have to say Sri Lanka has a top tier flag. Their flag is very, very good. A lot of countries have very, very boring flags and Sri Lanka has a very good one. It's up there with Albania and Nepal, which is the ultimate rating of top three flags in the world. If you know of good flags, send them to us. Everyone right now, Google Nepal's flag, and then Google Albania's flag, and then Google Sri Lanka's flag. Top tier flags. Amazing. Top three in the world. 
I'm willing to amend that if someone else sends us links to better flags. I'm always on the hunt for good flags. Yeah, so the flag of Sri Lanka is pretty nice. It's got a yellow, a mustard yellow border. It's got a lion holding a sword also against the red background and then also a stripe of orange and a stripe of green i feel like minimalism was not their thing they were just like yes let's make it nice and bright and colorful and that's really cool actually i correct myself not mustard yellow the border is gold but it looks like sort of mustard yellow in the in the picture and also the green is not green it's teal and the stripes represents the country's two largest minorities with the orange representing the tamils living in sri lanka both the Sri Lankan Tamils and the Indian Tamils, and the green stripe representing Sri Lankan Moors, which are the Muslims of Sri Lanka. Yes, like I said, top tier flag. But I'm willing to change my top three if you think there are better flags in the world. Everyone email us or Instagram us great flags of the world. Thank you. But back to Sri Lanka. Today, as this episode is being released on Easter Sunday, is actually the three-year anniversary of the bombing, the Easter bombing in Colombo of 2019. Colombo is the capital of Sri Lanka. It's highly modern, and the majority of it was financed by the Chinese because it's part of their Belt and Road Initiative, which we talked about in our episode about the Uyghurs. If you Google China and Colombo, the very first things that comes up is a BBC article that says a new Dubai or a Chinese enclave. And it goes back to things like China is very, very smart and clever in the way that they conduct their, I'm going to use the word foreign policy, I don't know if that's the right word, but they lend money, they support different nations, they're supporting Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka owes them $3 billion to them in Japan, so there's a massive debt there. And they're building them cities. They're sort of doing their outreach that they do, not just in Sri Lanka, but in other places of the world. It's part of this economic initiative they have. Yes, I was watching this video about the economics of Sri Lanka and the economist who runs this channel, it's called Asianometry. It's a really good channel, has said, look, I'm not sure about the major skepticism about Chinese debt and stuff, and actually Chinese debt in Sri Lanka is only, I think, 10% of their debt. That's how much it represents. And yeah, there are these like 99-year contracts for like Paul. He didn't go into it too much in the video, but it's kind of interesting. I think you said you saw this funny thing on Twitter about how the British and the Chinese conduct their foreign policy. And it's interesting that you just quoted this headline from an article from the BBC, which of course is British. It was a screenshot, I think, of Twitter where someone had written, when the Chinese come, we get a hospital, but when the British come, we get a lecture. And then someone underneath started being like, well, because the Chinese built you a hospital, you're going to get this, 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 this. And then someone commented underneath just said, here comes the lecture. And that is just like the epitome of it. Because honestly, I would be wary of accepting anything from the Chinese, but also when it comes to survival, when you need things like you can do way more with a hospital than a lecture. And I'm sure that all Europeans and the British want to do is lecture you about how you've done absolutely everything wrong and your economy is in shambles. And these are all the things you've done wrong. And it's like, cool, what are we going to do with that? 
Also, thank you for the hospital. That's way more useful to us. I love Sri Lankan people. The Sri Lankan people are honestly the nicest, loveliest people on earth. I think it's because they come from an island. And I think all people who come from islands, tropical islands with beautiful sea, are super chill, are super lovely. But they're almost like a little bit too chill. Like everyone's late all the time. There's no like get up and go drive. And like, because my mother's Indian and the difference between the Indians and the Sri Lankans is just mega. Like when you're sitting at the beach, my mum is like, why is there nobody here selling coconuts? It's because the Sri Lankans, they don't really care. Like you go to the coconut shop to buy them. Nobody's going to hustle and things like that. So I can totally believe these kind of policies of, oh, let's go organic and cut all fertilizers without thinking of the future consequences and stuff. Not to say that there aren't people who are way better qualified to run the country, but it also reminds me of something my dad told me once, and it was really hard to find this on the internet because there's not much written about it, but Sri Lanka has a lot of public holidays, and I remember we were there and like, I don't know, every we were there for like a couple of weeks, and there were all these public holidays because of every full moon there's this religious holiday, and then yeah, and then everyone's off. And, and we were like, how does this function? In fact, according to the rough guide to Sri Lanka, under festivals and public holidays, the chapter starts, it's sometimes claimed that Sri Lanka has more festivals than any other country in the world, with the four major religions on the island and no fewer than 25 public holidays. Things can seem to grind to a halt with disconcerting frequency. Yeah, all of these festivals follow the lunar calendar. But I remember my dad telling me once that the government actually adopted the lunar calendar as the official calendar, which is really great. I'm all in favor of the lunar calendar. It's closely linked to our cycles and our natural ways and nature and stuff. But it's super confusing because the lunar calendar is not like very regular, right? So every holiday day is different every single week. And that can lead to a lot of confusion, especially like in international situations and stuff. So he was like, yeah, you know, it didn't really work out. So I was like, oh, how long did they stick with this system, this official system of imposing the lunar calendar? And I thought he would say, oh, you know, it lasted like a couple of months or something. But actually, like, I think it really lasted a couple of years or something before they decided to get rid of it with this sort of chill attitude and this difference in time and perception. It's already not geared to be, even though it's a very rich island, a competitive economic force in South Asia. Are they kind of getting it right, though? Because capitalism is very unnatural. And it seems kind of strange to me that we would put ourselves under so much stress and pressure and let money dictate our lives. Whereas, like, I don't know, I just want to sit at a beach and, like, eat mangoes and, like, stare at the ocean. I don't want to go to work. You know what I mean? So maybe they, they're getting it right. They're not getting it wrong. Like that is the way we should be living. We should be paying attention to nature. Capitalism is unnatural. Destroy it. I mean, I think you're right. But let's not forget the absolute corruption fueled by sort of greed and capitalism that got us to this point. And yeah, we live in a global economy. And how, how does Sri Lanka move forward from this in a way that their people can lie on the beach and have fun and relax and eat? And on that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Thing one, visit Sri Lanka. It's fine. It's safe. The exchange rate is quite low. Go help their economy and visit Sri Lanka. Thing two, 
full moons are always in some way acknowledged by the Sri Lankan people. And I think it's really nice to pay attention to the cycles of nature as well. So pay attention when it's a full moon or a new moon. And thing three, there's one takeaway from the tensions in Sri Lanka is we need to listen to and include all people. Everyone's voices should be heard. Everyone just wants to feel included. So try to apply that in your everyday lives. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.